This is The Guardian. Today, how Turkey's president defied the odds and what it means for Turkish democracy. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Sunday evening, a democracy of 85 million people turned silent. Things were very, very quiet once the vote counting started happening. I think everyone was at home, glued to their TVs, watching the result. We've had official confirmation that those polls have now officially closed. The polls have officially closed. Adrian, it's a nail-biting night with people waiting, watching to see these results. Results which will determine the future of this country and also its influence regionally and globally. Let's not Turkey's election has been called the most important in the world this year. And polls in the lead-up said the country's longtime president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, was headed for defeat. As we headed towards the vote on Sunday, felt like the opposition had the momentum. Erdogan is an authoritarian. His main opposition ran on the promise it would release political prisoners, relax control of the media, transform Turkey from a country with an all-powerful president back to a democracy with a parliament that had a proper say. The government's response to devastating earthquakes in February and a struggling economy are seen as top voter concerns. One of their slogans was, spring will come again. But not yet. Official figures indicate that President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has fallen just short of the 50% of the vote that's needed. By the early hours of Monday, Erdogan had emerged with the biggest share of votes, the overwhelming favourite to be re-elected in a runoff election at the end of May. He now has the momentum, he has the wind in his back, and it really looks like everything is in place for him to win in two weeks' time. In a country devastated by an earthquake and facing economic ruin, how did he do it? And what does it tell us about the rule of strongmen elsewhere? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how Erdogan hung on. Ruth Michelson, you're based in Turkey and you've been covering this election for The Guardian. We'll get to why so many people thought Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party, known as the AKP, was going to lose this election. But to start with, can you explain why even the possibility that Erdogan would go was considered so momentous? How did he become such a defining figure? So Erdogan was voted in in 2002, comes to power in 2003, and 
he presents at this time as this young, energetic leader. With our team in the parliament, we will reward your trust and we will meet your expectations. No one need doubt us. From the beginning of Erdogan's political career, he has been known as someone who has this innate ability to get a crowd riled up and someone who is a great orator and knows how to speak to the masses. And so even from his earliest days in politics, what set him apart was this idea that he had a political charisma and an ability to communicate to people that um, was really a cut above. He gained a lot of political legitimacy through his connection to socially conservative religious figures and portraying himself as um, an Islamist politician that was willing to stick up for Turkish Muslims to worship freely. He'd been responsible for revitalizing infrastructure in Istanbul. And all of this galvanizes this image of him as someone who is about transformation. He could claim huge legitimacy politically for what he was doing. They were winning big majorities. They were absolutely transforming the economy. It was also a time when he was seen as more open to the idea of um, accession to the European Union. This idea of being a moderate Islamist that is pro-business, so more emphasis on modern than Islamist and open to the world. And so then how does that leader, a moderate, someone open to the world, begin to change over time? What starts to happen is in the period after about 2011, even as Erdogan regionally was hailed as an example of moderate Islamist governance, the AKP and and Erdogan increasingly crack down on freedom of speech, freedom of the press. There's increasing curbs on the internet, um, curbs on free assembly. Erdogan is looking to be the kind of leader that doesn't just build roads and bridges. There's increasing social interventions. There's a quote of his that gets repeated a lot um, from 2012, where he said that he wanted to foster a pious generation and he pours money into religious schooling, for example. Yeah, it's it's this gradual slide towards authoritarianism, but there are definitely moments where it speeds up. In 2013, there were huge protests over plans to raise one of the few green spaces left in Istanbul, an area called Gezi Park, that snowballed and became a nationwide anti-government movement. The crowd was chanting anti-government slogans and screaming, this is just the beginning, the fight is continuing. To which Erdogan responded by cracking down on the protesters, arresting opposition leaders and tightening civil liberties. That situation grew worse three years later in 2016 when elements of the military are accused of conspiring with one of Erdogan's former allies to launch a spectacular coup. State-run media read a statement saying the military took over, imposed martial law, and instituted a curfew. As countries across the world... One where we saw a military jet bomb the Turkish parliament, and Erdogan issue an address to the nation using his iPhone. 
We will take all the necessary steps by standing tall. We cannot behave otherwise and we will not leave the arena to them. I believe that we will end this invasion as soon as possible. He managed to survive that and then spent the years afterwards purging the country's institutions of anyone he suspected was involved in the coup, as well as lots of opposition figures who weren't part of it. By this point, Erdogan is pretty firmly the centre of gravity in Turkish politics, and he makes that position official in 2017 when he persuades the country to turn the presidency from a largely ceremonial office into one with real power and then gets himself elected to that very office. Ruth, all of this has been a stunning consolidation of power that Erdogan has managed to pull off. But what I want to know is, what's it like to be a journalist wanting to write critically of this guy in Turkey today? What's it like to be a judge who wants to issue an independent verdict? And I guess most crucially for us today, what's it like to run against him in an election? Well, I mean, you are running in a severely restricted environment. There was some analysis suggesting that while Erdogan, for example, on national television got around 32 hours of coverage during the election cycle, his rival Kilicharolu got something like 32 minutes. Wow. It's incredibly difficult to claim space in the political spectrum that's seen as legitimate. I mean, Erdogan is very good at positioning anyone that opposes him as an enemy of the state. That's how he's portrayed a lot of his um, political opponents, including some who are currently in jail. And that's how he portrayed the opposition. And that's a message that we've seen continued throughout the campaign. And at the same time, the kind of rhetoric that we see from Erdogan and his coalition partners is existential about their opponents. Erdogan's coalition partner said during the election cycle that the opposition would either receive life sentences in jail or, in his words, bullets in their bodies. God. So that gives you a sense of the stakes of this. And of course, Turkey is well known as being one of the world's leading jailers of journalists. That is unfortunately true. Turkey is not a free and fair environment for the media by any means, and that has worsened dramatically, not just since Erdogan came to power, but specifically over the past decade, um, we have seen a real profound tightening of the space for free and independent domestic media um, and an ability to criticise him in Turkish from within the country is is severely curtailed. Hmm. Notwithstanding all of that, Erdogan is actually a close ally of the UK, of the West. Turkey is, of course, a member of NATO. What kind of relationship does Erdogan have with Europe, the US, the rest of the world? So Erdogan has always been seen as um, something of a combative figure, I think. But one of his hallmarks is that he presents to Turkish citizens the idea that he's fighting for their interests on the international stage. And he uses that to increase his legitimacy at home. So this is some of how he manages to present what Turkey's doing following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, for example. He says, you know, we're not going to bow to what the West wants. We're going to follow our own path. We're going to have relations with the Ukrainians. We're going to sell them drones. 
but we're also going to have this business relationship with Russia. And he has managed to maintain this close, what appears to be quite a deeply empathetic and personal relationship with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, despite the fact that they've been on opposite sides of conflicts in Syria and in Libya. He's also, with this relationship with Putin, has has positioned himself as essential to the West. He is that bridge between the West and Russia, and he has made himself indispensable to the international community in a way that uh, that in his eyes allows him to turn around and then say, okay, so now there's going to be essentially a quid pro quo. And he can then present that back to the Turkish people and say, I'm fighting for your interests. Ruth, one thing that strikes me listening to this is that this isn't just the story of Turkey over the past 20 years. I mean, I look at Viktor Orban in Hungary, Vladimir Putin in Russia, even the former US president, Donald Trump. Erdogan is part of a wider trend here. That's absolutely true. I mean, I think there's probably um, some justification for thinking of Erdogan as a kind of blueprint for some of the things that we're seeing at the moment, for example, in in the US with Trump saying that he's running for re-election. So what we've seen this election cycle, for example, is that there has been increasing use of misinformation and what I think makes Erdogan a little bit different from, for example, Vladimir Putin, is that Erdogan has always stressed that he wants the validation of a mandate, that the that there is this sense that voting, even though it is an imperfect process in Turkey, is really, really important. And people turn out in enormous numbers. We saw record turnout in this election. So, Ruth, you've painted this picture for us of a country that is utterly dominated by Erdogan, where the opposition faces hurdles just to run, where free journalism is nearly impossible. And yet you say that everyone is surprised that Erdogan managed to make it through the first round of Sunday's election. So how does that work? How was it that Erdogan can be so powerful and yet under so much pressure in the lead up to the polls? Well, because even in an environment where he completely controls the information space. He has almost total control over the domestic media. There are some fundamental facts that would shake this image of him as in perfect control. And the first is an economic crisis that is connected to some rather strange economic policies that Erdogan has lent on over time. For example, a real resistance to raising interest rates. And what we've seen is that the effects of these on the economy is that, for example, last year, the lira halved in value. By some estimates, Turkey reached hyperinflation. And this has spurred a cost of living crisis in Turkey that no matter where you are on the political spectrum, it has affected you. And it has meant that people in some cases have completely changed their eating habits. It's caused a housing crisis. From the perspective of the opposition, the economy alone would be enough for them to be able to win. And what we're seeing is that Erdogan's ability to control 
the information space and, and push a line that says, under my rule, this problem occurred, but I am also the kind of person that can fix it. So just leave it to me to fix it rather than a change in government. That message really seems to have resonated with people. The other event that was thought to be a serious challenge to his rule was, of course, the devastating earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria three months ago, killing an estimated 50,000 people. How did that play into Erdogan's attempts to get re-elected? It really appeared right after the earthquake happened that he and his government were on the ropes in a way that he could not possibly have foreseen. So obviously... Erdogan did not cause the earthquake, but his government was responsible for responding quickly when it happened. And there were loud and furious accusations of people in the earthquake zone who said the government, the emergency services, the state just showed up too late and my relatives are dead because the government didn't come. This lady oh, very no, upset. No, what is she saying? That is something that would seem very, very difficult to overcome. And what was remarkable about the earthquake was that Erdogan, uh, he pushed a line that we've seen him use previously with other disasters. He said this was fate. And he had very successfully shifted the narrative away from the idea that the destruction in the earthquake zone, the loss of life was something tragic but inevitable that his government had borne no responsibility for in terms of the, the speed of their response. And there was just nothing that could be done and that he instead pivoted to talking about a reconstruction boom, that there would be over, I believe, 600,000 houses built quickly, and that um, over half of those would be built within the first year. And we even saw that the reconstruction started probably about three weeks after the earthquakes happened. He basically presented this idea that he could get it done. It was a fait accompli. Only he, with his complete control, could do it. And that people should trust him and only him to be able to do that. So, Ruth, is that the kind of campaign that he's run in the face of these incredible challenges to say, yes, things are terrible, but only I can fix them? Exactly. And he has portrayed the six-party opposition coalition that has been trying to end his time in power as chaotic, as fractured. Mr. Kamal, drink as much as you want. You can drink a full keg, but even that will not make you better. My nation will not give the floor to an alcoholic, a drunkard. And that he is this calm and capable alternative who is, um, in the words of some of his supporters, the father of the nation, who's almost transcended his political party and is someone that just cares about the average person, even as he has made them poorer through a cost of living crisis, but that only he can fix these problems. And we initially saw that he said that there would be a more subdued election campaign out of respect for the victims of the earthquake. And it seems like he pivoted from that idea and scheduled rally after rally and wanted to show this idea that he could still do it. He still has energy. He can still be this charismatic leader who can get it done for people. 
And I think that peaked in many ways with the speech that he gave on Sunday night, claiming victory on the balcony outside the AKP headquarters. He came out onto the stage singing one of his campaign songs. He tells this crowd who's screaming his name that he loves them. And he displayed an energy and a delight that we just haven't seen for for months. If our nation has made its choice in favor of a second round, then that is also welcome. We strongly believe that we will continue to serve our nation for the next five years. It's this idea that he has had a democratic mandate, essentially, handed back to him that says, yes, you are the father of the nation, you can get it done, we trust you and only you. And as you were travelling around the country in the lead-up to Sunday's poll, did you get a sense that members of the public were buying it, were buying this idea that while things are bad, he can be trusted to make them better? What I heard from voters was deeply divided. There were people who I spoke with who said... I have voted for Erdogan for over a decade, but the economic crisis meant that I will change my vote and I will vote for the opposition. But there were other people I met who literally said he is the father of the nation or he's the only person we trust to fix these problems. So I interviewed a group of voters in Ankara who were conservative Kurdish voters who had always voted for Erdogan and who said, you know, we would like there to be slightly more freedoms. Um, we don't like his restrictions on free speech, but we're just totally unconvinced by the opposition. And and what one of them said that I think really stuck out to me was, you know, people look at us like we're sheep and that's not the case. We are making this decision with eyes open. Ruth, the other big figure here is Erdogan's biggest rival, Kemal Kılıç You've actually met him. What was he like? And what is his pitch to Turkish people as an alternative? So I think first and foremost, the thing to realise about Kılıç is that he has run a campaign as the kind of anti-Erdogan, this kind of Joe Biden running against Donald Trump kind of figure, as someone who is trying to provide an antidote to 20 years of, I think, what we can safely call a cult of personality around Erdogan. We are not going to leave the fate of the Turkish Republic in the hands of one person. No one will accept the words of just one person. Kilic is a former accountant. He's a member of the Alevi religious minority in Turkey. So that is quite unique in Turkish history. So he's run this campaign that has been about inclusion, about having this broad base of support I want you to know that we will address everyone's issues. I will not discriminate in any way. I will embrace 85 million, regardless of party, identity or belief. I will be the president of 85 million. We've seen him up on stage making this gesture of putting his hands together in the shape of a heart that has been adopted by the opposition more broadly. Um, It is... Probably also worth mentioning that although he has run this campaign that's meant to be about inclusion of religious minorities, having the broadest possible base of support to challenge Erdogan, he has also gotten on stage at his rallies 
and said that he will deport millions of Syrian refugees and Afghan refugees in Turkey who have fled conflict, that he would deport them within two years. This doesn't really chime with, I think, what you or I would understand to be someone associated with social democracy. Coming up, what to expect from Turkey's runoff election on May 28th. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash today in focus. Ruth, the results of Sunday's election means Turkey is headed to a second round. So what happens next? How do the next two weeks play out? I mean, I think what we've already started to see is that there are profound questions for Kilic and his six-party opposition coalition. There are naturally questions about whether he was the right choice of candidate and how he's going to marshal that same level of support or, as he needs to do, increase it going into the runoff round. One of the major difficulties that he's facing at the moment is that we saw this huge surge in support for ultra-nationalist parties or nationalist parties in the parliament and in the presidential vote. There was a third candidate, Sinan Oan, who is kind of an extremist, ultra-nationalist figure who has run a campaign that's all about deporting refugees from Turkey. And Kilic is now under pressure to both maintain this broad base of support that he has, which includes Kurdish and left-wing voters that Oan and his, um, his supporters say they're very hostile to, while also now appealing 
potentially to get an ultra-nationalist in his coalition if he could. He is under pressure to try and grow that support and to stop Erdogan from feeling like he has the momentum going into another round. Ruth, we talk about this as if Erdogan has already won. I mean, why do we think it's so likely that he's going to emerge triumphant from the runoff in two weeks' time? Like, What's the maths that everyone's looking at? Erdogan has about a 5% margin over Kilicjolu at the moment. That's about the amount that Sinan Oan got. And so now there are questions about where do those voters go? And at the same time, the reason that it feels much more likely that we could see an Erdogan victory in two weeks is because Kilic Dorolu is going to have a really hard time motivating people who were so determined to see the end of Erdogan after 20 years to come back to the polls for a second time and to convince them that it is possible to do it in two weeks' time if they stay the course. There are some very limited options for victory for Kilic Dorolu, but they're getting narrower and they all depend on him motivating a very, very broad base of people with conflicting interests and keeping his coalition together. And all of that in combination just feels like a huge challenge. If he can't do it and Erdogan wins another term as president, what do we expect he'll do in office? What's on his agenda? I mean, the first thing that he's going to have to deal with are many of the same problems that motivated voters to turn away from him this time. Uh, There is still a profound and worsening cost of living crisis. There's some analysis out today that suggests that the Turkish lira could lose another half of its value, another 50% in the next year. Wow. Due to Erdogan's economic policies. That is going to put enormous pressure on Turkish society as a whole. So that problem isn't going away. Ruth, this is clearly a shocking result for so many people, and we can look at it as a triumph of authoritarianism, and that's clearly part of the story, but I wonder if it also overlooks the fact that this politician does have his finger on the pulse of Turkey. Like, he clearly gets something about this country that his rivals don't. I'm wondering, what is that? What is the heart of this man's political appeal? When you speak to people that have continued to support him throughout the past 20 years, they talk about him as someone that sticks up for their interests. And I think as a a voter, as, um, as any citizen, that's something that that always resonates with people. If you feel that a politician sticks up for you, it's very hard to give that up. But is that true even if the reality of the country is that the economy is in tatters, that when the earthquake struck, the authorities were late to arrive? Like, how is it that people still believe he's in their corner fighting? I think because he has this total control of the information space. And so he presents himself as someone that's very capable. He presents himself very convincingly as the solution to those problems. And I think it feels believable Mm. to people who say that he champions their interests, that he knows how to be in touch with the average person. 
that there's a power in being able to tell the story, whatever the reality. Exactly. And he has a narrative and a story that I think resonates with people in a way that Kilich Dirolu has struggled to do. Ruth, just finally, the pattern of Erdogan's time in power has been that civil liberties, media freedoms, democratic institutions are slowly suffocated the longer he stays in office. If he does win in two more weeks, do you expect that pattern will continue? All of the conditions are there for him to be newly empowered to crack down on opponents. And we certainly saw that on the campaign trail, he flagged uh, some new areas that he might further crack down on, particularly LGBTQ rights. He was very fond of branding all of his opponents as being supporters of gay rights. Um, and that suggests that this would be an area that he he might extend the crackdown into even further. One of the really important things to remember about this is that Erdogan obviously really values having a mandate returned to him at the ballot box. But that mandate and that democratic process that he has celebrated, that is so important in Turkey, is something that he is celebrating because it newly empowers him to say, well, I am justified in cracking down on these opponents. I'm justified in locking up journalists. I'm justified in in calling people terrorists because this is the leadership that you voted for. And so if we see, as we expect to do, another Erdogan victory in two weeks' time, the expectation is that he will see this as justification to further concentrate power around the presidency and to further crack down on his opponents because he will be able to say, I have a mandate to do this. This is what the Turkish public wanted. Ruth, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Ruth Michelson, a journalist based in Turkey, whose coverage of Sunday's election and the runoff in two weeks' time. You can follow at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Natalie Ktenat. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.